Hey there. If you're listening to this, it means you haven't made it over to my new podcast feed yet. Basically, if you want to continue to keep getting run the numbers on Spotify or iTunes, you need to follow the link in the description. Just expand the description and click the link with the PSA next to it. You can also just search for Run the Numbers and look for our teal logo, or as my wife likes to call it, Seafoam Green, which I really can't believe I just said out loud. When you get there, click follow. Please do, because as my financial advisor recently told me, I really need this. When I think of the various levels of the CEO, or CFO rather, there's like kind of the level one version, which is, are your numbers correct and accurate? Sort of like the accounting side of things. Then there's like the level two CFO, who's thinking through forecasting, making sure the top line and P&L are correct. And then there's the level three CFO, which is rare, which is somebody who can do all the things in the level one and level two CFOs can do, but then leverage the fact that they can forecast the business, they understand the business drivers to make impactful decisions, identify opportunities for growth for the business and invest behind that. And that's sort of how I think about the hierarchy of CFOs, and you see various versions of these in the public and private markets. Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Thank you, Fat Joe, and welcome to Run the Numbers, the number five business podcast in Cambodia where I interview world-class CFOs, operators, and the investors who fund them on how to get the most out of your company's performance. This podcast is a playbook of sorts for ambitious people in the world of finance, strategy, and operations. Today, my guest is Adam Swisicki, the current CFO at Rippling and former CFO at Brex. Adam is the right-hand man to Parker Conrad, helping to thoughtfully construct a compound startup which addresses HR, IT, and finance needs using the employee as the center of gravity. On this episode, we cover how a CFO allocates resources when you are building something so grand and ambitious, how Rippling thinks about the lifetime value of a customer, how competitive moats have evolved in the workforce management space over time, why execution eats strategy for breakfast, avoiding burnout and decision-making fatigue as a chief financial officer, and how short-selling earlier in his career changed how he sees the tech landscape. This was truly a bucket list interview for me. I've long been fascinated by how Rippling is executing on such an ambitious vision, and speaking with the wizard who's moving the levers within the operating model was illuminating. What surprised me perhaps the most, outside of the gorgeous business model that Rippling is running, is Adam's approach to work and how type A, ambitious people balance their desire to win with the need to enjoy the journey. All this and much, much more after a short word from our sponsors. If you're a startup founder or executive running a growing business, you know that as you scale, your systems break down and the cracks start to show. If this resonates with you, there are three numbers you need to know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind, so you get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash 
metrics. Oh yeah, your boy loves metrics. That's netsuite.com slash metrics to get your KPI checklist. That's netsuite.com slash metrics. I really need this, guys. Please go to netsuite.com slash metrics. Well, you know what I always say, maintaining compliance is never complete, which is why most security and IT teams feel like they're always in audit purgatory. (laughs) I'm there right now. But there is a solution, and it's easier than you think. Escape the infinite loop by using ThoroughPass's compliance and audit solution. ThoroughPass is the only solution using AI-infused technology and in-house auditors to take your team from start to stamp without leaving the platform. As a winner of multiple G2 awards, including top awards for usability and service, your team is in good hands with ThoroughPass. From onboarding with dedicated experts to audits from in-house auditors who know every aspect of your framework needs, you can have complete confidence in your ThoroughPass compliance journey. ThoroughPass is the only solution to offer audits for your most needed security frameworks. I'm talking HIPAA to HITRUST and SOC2 to ISO 27001. Woo! If you need PCI, DSS, pen tests, or any other major compliance framework, ThoroughPass can hook you up. With ThoroughPass, you never need to worry again. Relax, we fix audits. Find more at ThoroughPass.com. That's T-H-O-R-O-P-A-S-S.com. Tell them your boy CJ sent you. They'll hook you up. Boom. Adam, thanks for joining me on the pod today. Yeah, thanks for having me, CJ. Happy to be here. I've been a big fan of Rippling for a while. I've been a fan of your business model. I've been a huge fan of the way you've expanded your TAM. And uh, this was an interview at the top of my list. So I'm really pumped I landed it. Awesome. So I love to nerd out on business models. A lot of listeners like myself, they may be more familiar with the typical SaaS side of the tech world. What are the ways that a workforce management platform like Rippling typically monetizes its business model? Yeah, so taking a step back, Rippling is unique because we have products across HR, IT, and finance, and they're all tied back to our single source of truth, which is the HR information system. And the way we describe this, and Parker talks about it, is we are a compound startup. And so what I mean by that is, as a compound startup, you shouldn't really think of Rippling as just one SaaS company. We actually launch multiple SaaS companies from our platform across these various verticals, HR, IT, and finance. And when we launch these new products, we get these products to scale very quickly, much more quickly than you would typically see for other companies launching products or startups that are launching new SaaS products themselves. And the reason for that is, one, all of these products have strong synergies with our existing product suite, and they all are infused with capabilities enabled by our knowledge of the employee graph and the employee information system. And then the second reason is we can point the fire hose of demand for these products that we launch at the right customer at exactly the right time. So like an example of that would be when a company hires their first IT person, we would target them with our IT products. When they hire their first global employee, we know that our global EOR or global payroll system might be a good fit for that company. And so what that translates to in terms of our financial profile is at the aggregate level, Rippling is a scale Series E company, which is in hyper growth. But underneath the surface, what you'll see is a bunch of Series A, Series B, Series C product lines that are individually in their own hyper growth curves. And so what we hope that that translates to over time is a company that grows faster and for longer than you would typically see for other SaaS companies of our scale. And thus far, that's proven out to be true. Now, to answer your question directly on how do we make money, you know, we are a compound startup on the product side. 
we're also a compound startup as it relates to monetizing with customers. So we do earn a material amount of revenue from SaaS subscription fees, which are charged per employee per month. But we also have other revenue streams, which in aggregate are a material percentage of our overall revenue. So a few examples of these. On the moving money side, we earn money on FX fees. So when we do a currency conversion on payroll or on bill pay, as an example, we earn money on float. So as we move money for customers, there's a period of time where that money is in transit and we're earning interest on those funds in transit. And then third would be interchange. So as customers swipe our corporate cards, Rippling earns a take rate on the customer's card swipes. And then the last thing I would call out, which is a pretty interesting feature of Rippling, is revenue share. So I mentioned that Rippling has the ability to target its own products to the right customer at exactly the right time. That's also true for third-party products. So we have partners, for example, like Google or 401k partners like Human Interest, where similarly, we can help provide them distribution and we're in revenue share for that capability. It's sort of comparable to how you would think about the advertising revenue for somebody like Amazon as a point of comparison. Adam, I've, I've got a level with you, man. I've got some serious CFO FOMO going on because you get to tell a story every day that uses terms and concepts like compound startup, center of gravity, employee graph. It's a complex and beautiful business model when you take a step back and look at it. Yeah, it's really, you know, my background is on the investing side, both in private equity and, and in the public markets. I probably looked at hundreds of SaaS companies in that period of time. And really the impetus for me joining Rippling is I did look at it and see something that felt truly different than other companies that I looked at. And that's really also been borne out in the metrics and the numbers and the financial performance we've delivered as well, which is pretty exciting. I joke with my wife when I describe what I do. Sometimes I'll be like, oh, no, I'm an artist. And she, she laughs at me. She's like, you're, you're a CFO. I'm like, no, I get to craft a story using the different elements of my PL. And she's like, you're the, literally the biggest dork I've ever met. But <laughs> you, you have a lot of cool tools or I guess mediums and shapes at your disposal to craft here. So it leads me to my next question. How does a CFO possibly allocate resources when you're clearly building an entire platform, not just a single layer in a tech stack? Yeah, I mean, on the question of capital allocation, it's funny. I think the first thing that comes to mind is research and development spend. For a company in the startup world, in particular Rippling, R&D tends to be your biggest dollar spend. Our CEO, for example, tweeted that we'll spend about as much as all of the pays, so pay Losty, pay Core, pay Com, combined on R&D next year. So it's a big dollar amount of spend for Rippling. And so it's a lot of dollars to allocate. And it's funny because I remember reading a book from the former Stripe COO, Claire Hughes Johnson, that talked about this idea of R&D ROI and finding the perfect framework. Mm. And that in all of her experience at Google and at Stripe, she had tried all these different things and never sort of found something that worked. And my experience, unfortunately, has been the same. And, you know, I think that the two routes you can go are one kind of throw up your hands and say, like, you know, I guess we can't kind of bound this within sort of any ROI guardrails, which isn't a great answer, obviously. You know, I think the approach that I take is find a way to analyze the business, which can get buy-in from your business partners, which is auditable, and can at least identify obvious areas of over or under investment. And so the way that we do this at Rippling, just to give you an example, is we look at the total company, and then we also look at it by cloud. So we think about the finance cloud, the HR cloud, and the IT cloud, separately because they're typically aligned to different buyers. Often those products are bought in suites aligned to those three clouds. 
And the way we look at our R&D spend is we look at it through a combination of things. The first is financial metrics. So we look at the rule of 40, both at the aggregate company level, as well as at the cloud level. We look at R&D paybacks, which is a similar concept to sales and marketing paybacks, where we look at what is the R&D spend relative to the revenue delivered next year? And how does that compare to benchmarks in the public markets? And then another thing that I found to be very useful and something that I actually haven't heard talked about a lot before is looking at the R&D spend associated with different product lines or different product suites and look at what is the revenue required to support those R&D investment levels if we kind of look out four or five years. And I think that this is something that you saw, I think a lot of startups struggle with over the last two or three years, where they always had this idea of let's invest a lot in R&D, we can kind of figure out margins later. But what they realized is there was no kind of logical equation of TAM times market share equals our revenue that ever made sense relative to their R&D spend. And so I think that's a helpful way to avoid overinvesting in certain product categories. And then I, I mentioned there's also product metrics. So one thing that's a little bit more unique to Rippling is that we frequently look at the amount of code that we're reusing from the platform to build our apps, because the idea is we want to be more and more efficient at building new applications, leveraging what we have in the platform layer. And so this code reusability concept is important to us. And the types of things we're thinking through is, are we getting leverage from our most mature clouds? Are we structurally over or underinvested in certain areas of the business? And also, how do we balance the resourcing trade-offs between harvesting profitability on more mature clouds and making room for investment in emerging clouds? So that's sort of how we think about it on the R&D side of things. Adam, it sounds like you've come up with an equation that's akin to like an R&D payback period. Yeah, that's right. I think the important thing to do when you establish these metrics are find things that are easy to measure, easy to audit, and also easy to compare relative to peers. Because I find that a lot of attempts at R&D ROI tend to be things like looking at project level MPV or incremental contribution to revenue from a dollar of R&D investment. Well, in theory, that sounds great. What I've found in practice is it's very hard to find alignment across the org and buy-in to the inputs to those equations. So I think the important thing to remember with any attempt on analyzing research and development cost is to make sure that you keep in mind the quality of the inputs inform the quality of the outputs in this like very theoretically accurate and great analysis of looking at marginal investment return. Well, theoretically, that would be the way that we manage the business. I think is very difficult to implement and practice, especially at a startup. It reminds me, I actually got called out by an investor one time because I had this five-year plan and I had these three product lines that I was bringing online. And he was looking at it and he was saying, why is the R&D spend still so high in like years four and five? And what I realized is I made the stupid mistake of I didn't scale down the R&D investment in the out years where it's just maintenance at that point. So a lot of people will be playing around with a spreadsheet and they say, we have these new revenue lines. We have to invest ahead of time to get it all coded, but they keep growing it at the same percentage as the revenue is growing. But like in reality, that shouldn't be the case. You should have a stable code base that, you know, maybe you're doing improvements to it and you're doing maintenance to it, but you're not doing a net new build. Yeah, totally. And I think to that point, on this idea that I mentioned around balancing resourcing between mature and emerging clouds, I do think as a company, you have to have some framework around investment in initiatives that are nearer term to paying off. So right. generating revenue in the short term and then creating the funding to then support future bets. 
And I think some companies struggle with like kind of extracting enough profitability from their current book of business to then fund additional new bets in the future, or they get over their skis in terms of investing in too many new bets. And then that sometimes leads to tough decisions in terms of, you know, you're kind of overweight on cash burner, just from a complexity perspective, you're trying to do too much at the same time. Absolutely. That's a great way to put a bookend on that. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. As a SaaS CFO, I know firsthand how difficult it is to report on SaaS metrics. We've all seen a deal close at the end of the month, but the customer's contract doesn't actually start until the middle of the next month, creating the classic discrepancy between bookings or committed ARR and actual ARR, the real stuff. That's why I'm so pumped to be partnering with Maxio, a company trusted by thousands of SaaS companies to understand these reporting nuances. They basically built and automated the SaaS dashboard I tried to manually cobble together for three years. In 2022, SaaS Optics and Chargeify combined to become Maxio, the only billing and financial operations platform that was purpose-built for B2B SaaS. They're helping SaaS finance teams automate billing and RevRec, manage collections and payments, and put together investor-grade reporting packages. Visit maxio.com slash run the numbers to learn how Maxio can help you supercharge financial operations in 2024. Request a demo using the Run the Numbers link and receive a 10% discount on your first year with Maxio. That's maxio.com forward slash run the numbers. And so now that I understand your business model and how you make money and how you forecast for this beast, can you take me through what competitive moats in your industry look like and maybe how they've evolved over time? Yeah, I think the context here, which is, I think, important is if you look at the SaaS industry, you saw this period of time where there's a shift from on-premise kind of all-in-one players. So think of the Microsofts, SAPs, IBMs of the world. And when SaaS came on the scene, there's this unique point in time where there's a sharding of applications where many companies started up and they realized they couldn't fully displace Microsoft, but they could kind of peel off specific use cases within Microsoft or Oracle and convert them to SaaS applications and build real businesses around that. And I think that that was very helpful in terms of the transition of the overall technology landscape from on-premise to SaaS. The downside of that approach, though, is it really created a lot of software sprawl. So I remember seeing a statistic where the average 500 to 1,000 person company now has something like 250 SaaS applications, which is crazy. And what this translates to is a real nightmare on the back end in terms of, first of all, it's very costly. You're managing a lot of systems, so your IT person is kind of going crazy running around and maintaining all these things. The integrations between those systems are imperfect if they exist at all. You have data silos which emerge. Permissioning is different across all these systems. So like when somebody gets promoted to a manager, there's no easy way to update their permissions across all the systems they use at the same time. And just in general, you look at employee information, which is changing constantly. It's not flowing through to all those applications on a real-time basis, which creates a lot of complexity for the business. And so what you've seen over the last three to four years in particular has been this large wave, which has been picking up momentum towards rebundling. And part of that has also been catalyzed by the tougher macro where companies are looking at with a very serious eye, do we need kind of these 250 vendors? Wouldn't it be better to consolidate these into fewer relationships? And Rippling has really been on the leading edge of that broader macro trend, which has been great. And within that broader context, I think that Rippling is a pretty unique animal in our approach. So if you look at the broader startup landscape, 
we're really the only ones who've built out HR, finance, and IT and done so on a global basis. You can kind of look around at various startup competitors who have done pieces of it. We have people who have approached the business global first. There's definitely competitors in finance, people picking off parts of IT. But in most cases, they're years behind or not present at all in large areas of our business. So Rippling is sort of the only game in town as far as our approach to the market. And so I think our secret sauce within this this broader competitive backdrop is the fact that we have the ability to leverage the employee graph and our knowledge of employees and infuse that into all of our products because the natural question becomes like, how can Rippling compete in all of these markets simultaneously? Sounds great in theory, but how do you do it in practice? And, you know, what I mean by infusing the knowledge of the employee graph is, you know, in HR, I think it's somewhat intuitive. When you think about the full hire to retire cycle, it's great to have that in one system. I go into the applicant tracking system, set up an interview for someone. We convert them to an offer. They immediately move into payroll. We get them set up with all the things they need as an employee. And then, you know, you kind of manage them within the platform thereafter. But as you think about IT and finance, the same idea is true. So for IT, what happens when you start a new company? You need a computer shipped to you. That computer needs to be specified to your needs. So if you're in finance, you're probably using a Windows computer. If you're an engineer, you're using Apple. You have different applications depending on which department you're in. And Rippling automatically configures those applications and those computers for you. And then similarly on the finance cloud side of things, you can kind of think of all the things that come up in terms of identifying the right approver for a bill that you have, or depending on the department you're in, whether you should have a corporate card or what your limit should be, all those things rely on employee data. And that's sort of what I mean by Rippling has this ability, despite competing in so many different markets, to leverage this advantage that we have to create differentiated products that compete very effectively in a different way than the point solution competitors compete in these markets. So we're sort of playing a different game. And we built this platform really from the beginning to allow us to leverage this common employee schema. And also, I alluded to this a little bit earlier, reuse portions of the code or the middleware on our platform to launch products faster. And so what that means is if you think about things like reporting or permissioning or approval flows, we've invested in those capabilities very, very, very deeply at the platform layer. So we've enabled them to be very robust in terms of functionality. And then we surface those to our product teams who can then build products very quickly with very robust functionality. And I think to build a company that way really requires vision from the start. And so I think for us, we benefited from the fact that this is, I think, the fourth startup that Parker's launched. He knew from the beginning he wanted to invest in platformization eight years ago. And we built Rippling in this very specific way, whereas normally what you'd see is companies kind of launch product one in a silo, product two in a silo, product three in a silo. That isn't the architecture that we have at Rippling. And because we've built the company this way, I think there are compounding advantages over time, even if a new competitor came onto the market today. And what I mean by that is, as you see the pace of Rippling's innovation over time and our ability to leverage these platform components, you look at 2020 through 2023, the pace of product launches and the pace of innovation has been increasing at a greater than linear rate in terms of new SKU launches. And I would expect that to continue into 2024 and beyond. So let's play this forward. You did just launch BillPay. What makes a new product like BillPay when integrated with the rest of the platform you just described different from, say, the others in the market? So Rippling's Finance Cloud is unique because it allows you to see all the spend at your company, whether it's on payroll, corporate cards, expense management, or bill pay. And it does this both in the US and globally. 
So if you compare our offering to other competitors in the finance space, there's a few things that really stand out. First is that you can see all of your spend in one place. And I know that's a common tagline for a lot of competitors in the finance market. But for Rippling, what this means is it's not just about corporate cards or expense management and bill pay. What other competitors miss out on is actually your largest cost, which is people. So if you look at the Rippling platform, we also offer payroll, we have headcount planning. And so when you think about managing your business and having insight into the full bar of your costs in any given month and forecasting that on a go-forward basis, we capture not only operating expense, but also people expense. So that, that's one major difference. The second one is that bill pay is seamlessly integrated with our employee graph. So going back to this idea of an integrated platform and competing on, on Rippling's turf versus trying to go head-to-head on feature parity with point solutions. And so just to give you some examples to bring this to life, approval flows for bill pay are always routed to the right person. So the right manager, the right finance business partner, whether it's a single step or multi-step approval, you have very precise controls on spend. So for example, a salesperson will be able to go and spend on a large dinner to host prospective clients. Whereas for a customer support specialist, where that type of behavior would be less expected, that spend would not be allowed. So these very precise controls to ensure that you have compliance spend is a big part of the product. And then a third thing, which I think is really interesting, is the ability to use the Rippling product for unique insights. And so what I mean by this is Rippling is connected to a lot of different software through our IT platform and our app management platform. So I'll use an example that I've experienced at Rippling and I talked a little bit about on our blog. We can look at our largest vendors like Tableau or like Salesforce and line up login data and usage of those products with the employee graph and see, hey, like we are only using 400 out of 500 licenses in Tableau, or we have another 100 licenses where a person only logged in once a year. And it allows us to look at that data and identify opportunities for cost savings. And so as we think about not only paying bills properly, but also spending our money in the right place before we pay those bills, Rippling enables these unique insights by leveraging capabilities across the entire platform, which aren't just limited to the finance cloud. It really touches on all of HR, finance, and IT capabilities in order to enable that to happen. And so when you put all that together, the way I would pitch it is bill pay creates a seamless end-to-end experience to instantly capture your bills, route them to the right person, pay the vendor in the US or wherever in the world they are, and get a holistic set of analytics to ensure that you're both forecasting your spend accurately across both, of course, your vendor costs, but also your headcount cost, and then separately to help you identify opportunity for cost savings in a way that no other platform can. Damn, I know you're the CFO, but I mean, the marketing team's got to give you a raise and enlist you as a pitch man. That that was great. Uh, <laughs> pay that man. So there seems to be a lot of expansion potential from all of this you're describing here, okay? How, how do you think about the lifetime value of a customer or a user at Rippling? Yeah, so typically we expect customers to land with a certain set of products and it'll vary depending on if they're a small business or an enterprise. And then we'll upsell those customers other products over time. So for example, someone lands with HRIS and payroll day one, but then afterwards we see that they hire their first IT admin and we'll target them with our IT product suite. Or they'll hire their first global employee and we'll sell them our EOR product. And what that results in is you see their average customer value in terms of dollars and the number of products that they're using trends up over time. 
And if you actually look at the cohort data for new Rippling customers, there's this very kind of clear trend line of monetizing customers more and faster with each successive cohort, which is very cool. And what it means for our customer value is that our average contract value for a Rippling customer, although we sell primarily to small businesses, looks much more like some ACVs for enterprise customers. And it unlocks the ability to have very attractive unit economics, despite targeting the SMB market, which gets a bad rap for having tough economics to make work for most companies. And we do also, in addition to cross-sell, tend to sell to small businesses, which themselves grow above average relative to most companies in the U.S. economy. Adam, it sounds like this all informs how much you can afford to spend to acquire a customer, right? Yeah. So we do look at customer lifetime value. And one of the unique things about Rippling is when you look at SaaS average paybacks today, they're roughly 30 months or so. And for Rippling, I won't disclose an exact number, but they're dramatically below the SaaS average. And that's a pretty attractive characteristic of our business that we're able to grow very, very quickly, but also do so efficiently. And it's a signal of obviously very strong product market fit. When we look at the cost of acquiring a customer and, and think about how we allocate capital, going back to one of your earlier questions, we look at actually paybacks at the aggregate level, but we also look at paybacks by geography and by customer segment because we see different behaviors for each. And the reason we do that is it helps us understand if we're adding an additional million dollars of sales and marketing spend, we have the flexibility to know where is that money best spent, which is pretty important for us as we think about profitability goals, reducing burn, et cetera, et cetera. And then if you think about paybacks overall, our aspiration over time is to have best-in-class paybacks. We're not there today. But we do have a very strong go-to-market machine. And also, I think just as importantly, we've done a really good job. We have great sales partners who also deeply understand paybacks themselves. And so I think it's been pretty fun at Rippling to actually see our go-to-market leaders look at their paybacks every month. And we actually gate investments in certain geographies or certain product categories contingent on achieving certain payback thresholds. And I think that's actually something that's pretty rare at a lot of companies where the sales machine kind of understands the economics of selling to the customer and what they need to achieve to unlock additional budget to continue to grow. And that's a level of rigor at Rippling that's emerged over the past year that's been really great to see. I want to flag that for listeners because not only are you looking at the customer acquisition cost at the customer level, and the cohort level, but you're also looking at it at the product level, which I think is an amazing signal as to if you should keep investing in a product line. A lot of people keep it too high level and they don't dive down into like, is this product like contribution margin positive? Like how are we actually looking at this? So I think that's brilliant. Yeah, agree. Okay. I think I understand the flywheels at play here. Very powerful. What's Rippling's North Star metric then for optimizing company performance? Yeah. So I'll give you three. And then I'll answer the question. Three, North Star. Oh, come on, man. Three. All right, let's go. So number one is ARR growth. So growth is the most valuable thing. And so our investor, Green Oaks, did this great analysis for us where they showed us the ability to maintain high growth. And this may sound somewhat intuitive, but it's helpful to see the empirical analysis. The ability to maintain high growth and reduce the decay of that high growth is the number one most correlated variable to long-term company value. And so what that means is when you look at the best-in-class SaaS companies, they have this unique ability to grow 100% and then 90% and then 85 or 80% and so on and so forth. And then 
kind of maintain this like 30 to 40% growth trajectory for a very long period of time. And you can contrast that with other companies where you see massive growth, 100% growth, and then within a year, they're at 30%. And the reasons for that are, are many, but I think a large contributor to that is that they are point SaaS solutions where the market just isn't large enough to support their growth for a long period of time. And that ties back to the idea behind rippling all the products we have competing in all these different areas to avoid that same issue. The two other metrics I'll touch on quickly, CAC paybacks, we just talked about it. You need to make sure you're growing efficiently. If you can't grow efficiently, you're in a tough spot. I think you saw this a lot over the last year. Basically, a lot of companies were faced with, hey, we're burning a lot of money, we're growing 30%, let's actually be more efficient and grow slower. But now you're a break-even company growing 10%, which isn't much better. And then the last thing we look at is rule of 40. And the reason we look at that is it does capture the R&D investment, which I think is important to keep an eye on and not just focus on sales efficiency. Now, to answer your question very directly, though, our number one goal is still ARR growth. Yeah. For the reasons I mentioned above, which is it is the most valuable thing over time. And I think you'll tend to find that if you grow long enough, you kind of outgrow all the issues with R&D dollar spend or any other issue you have with your margins. So that is the number one thing we're focused on at this point in time. I'm so glad you brought up revenue growth endurance because that's a that's a metric that not a lot of people bring up, but it really does create long-term shareholder value. It's like, how, how long can you stay at that number or how slow can you decay over time? Like what's your half-life of revenue growth? But if you can keep it up there in that 30 to 40% range for, I don't know, a handful of more years than your competitor, like it has like exponential impact to your valuation. Yeah. And I think we'll be pretty sad when we're in the 40% growth range. We're not going to disclose exact growth numbers on this podcast, but yeah. we definitely aspire to do things that haven't been done before. And we're excited about that. Love it. Love the endurance. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about frameworks and working habits. And so I asked this question to all the CFOs that I get to talk to. What qualities do you think separate the good CFOs from the great ones? So I think the most important thing is capital allocation. It's funny, I, I read a book a few years ago. It was on the JP Morgan summer reading list. It was called CEO Excellence. And it looked at what is the most important characteristic which distinguishes high-performing public companies from low-performing ones. And the number one variable was capital allocation. And they looked at level of investment, ability to move investment around between different areas in the business, and ability to take concentrated bets. And I think as a CFO, thinking through where do we allocate our money, how do we continue to drive growth, that really is the main responsibility for the CEO, both directly, but also to do so in partnership with the CEO and other business partners. And so when I think of the various levels of the CEO, or CFO rather, there's like kind of the level one version, which is, are your numbers correct and accurate? Sort of like the accounting side of things. Then there's like the level two CFO, who's thinking through forecasting, making sure the top line and P&L are correct. And then there's the level three CFO, which is rare, which is somebody who can do all the things in the level one and level two CFOs can do, but then leverage the fact that they can forecast the business, they understand the business drivers to make impactful decisions, identify opportunities for growth for the business and invest behind that. And that's sort of how I think about the hierarchy of CFOs and you see you know, various versions of these in the public and private markets. So capital allocation is number one. The second one I would call out is the ability to go against the grain. 
And mm. so I think that it's really important to be an independent thinker and a thought partner for the CEO and other members of the C-suite. And I think the CFO actually has a pretty unique perspective in this regard because they are probably the best position to really understand the company's strategy, look at the business health every week as you look at sales performance and other metrics in the business, and also have a sense during planning of how various initiatives in R&D or go-to-market tie to revenue. And so what that allows the CFO to do is really put together pieces that other people can't and drive insights that other people might not be able to produce on their own. And so I think having those pieces, developing your own point of view, and having accurate and sound judgment is a very important trait for a successful CFO. That's a soundbite right there. We're going to clip that. So how do you balance your time then between strategy and execution? I can tell just from the 30 or so minutes we've been together that you're you're an independent thinker, you're a high-level strategic thinker, but you also know the details and minutia extremely well. So how do you determine which altitude you should fly at throughout the day? Yeah. You know, it's funny. Most companies spend a lot of time debating strategy. There's also a ton of books about strategy, fewer about execution. <laughs> uh, but my opinion is execution matters way more than strategy for startups. So if I were to ballpark it, it would be 95% execution, 5% strategy. And it's very different than public companies. So when I was an investor, like you sort of thought about business quality, and it was like this very academic approach of finding the right business with a good strategy and a good market position. And you know, if you think about it, the reality is for any fame company, they could survive bad execution. You could have a bad CEO and they're in pretty unassailable market positions, and there's not going to be a meaningful degradation in their performance, at least for some period of time. Startup world is totally different. You have new markets, they're highly competitive, the company's going through massive changes as it goes from 100 employees to 1,000 to 10,000. And if you're out-executed by a competitor for a year, two years, three years, you see, and you've seen this over the last few years, you can see market leaders who go from being number one to being just one of many in a pack, or even in some cases out of business. And so I think that's pretty unique about the startup world and different from the public market landscape. And then, you know, I think within that, to assist with execution, it's really important for leaders, including the CFO, to operate at all levels. So when I think about my typical day, I do try to have a mix between saving time for high-level thinking and kind of observing the machine of the company understanding how my team's working, what are the projects they're working on, what are other areas of the business that need my attention, but then separately getting involved in the areas where I can give the most leverage to the business. Again, whether that's within the finance team or outside of it, and acting in some cases still as an IC and doing work myself. And so I do think this idea of operating at all levels, it is a key trait of things that we screen for at Rippling. And I think in general, is something that's very important for a CFO. I think the minute that you step back from like all IC work, like you say, like, oh, I'm, I'm too big to like get in a spreadsheet. I think that's the second you lose the pulse of the business. That's just my high level take. Like you need to be able to jump in and get down into the weeds and you shouldn't stay there all day because that's not, I mean, they're paying you the salary they pay you as a CFO because you need to be a high level strategic thinker, but you need to be aware of what's going on at the ground. And it dovetails into what you were saying earlier about execution, eating strategy for breakfast. And I'm so glad you said that because people always talk about Google, you know, being the highest level thinkers, the best strategy out there. But 
from my perspective, you know, $69 billion in free cash flow from ad revenue each year covers up a lot of sins. And the companies in the public markets, like you said, if you have a lot of revenue and free cash flow, especially from one or two killer products, you can get away with a lot of stuff and it can just be looked at like you're doing all the right things. But for companies that are scrappier, maybe earlier in their life cycle, like I'll take of someone who can execute nine out of 10 times over someone who's just a high level thinker and is just going to float thoughts. No, agree with all of that. And I think my point of pride this week, just a small anecdote is yeah. I was flying out to SF from New York. I live in New York in economy where frugal at rippling. And I was sitting next to somebody who was observing me work on the plane. And he asked me, am I a financial analyst? Because yeah, I was in spreadsheets and creating presentations the whole plane ride. So I took that actually as a badge of honor in terms of, you know, reinforcing this idea of leaders operate at all levels at rippling. Yeah. Shout out to all my homies in economy and shout out to all my <laughs> homies rocking the PowerPoint. That's an amazing anecdote. So are there any frameworks, methods, or processes you found to be especially useful in kind of sorting through and prioritizing your work? Yeah, there's a few things that come to mind. The first one, and I, I think this is something that has been talked about by Frank Slootman, the, the Snowflake CEO, is I think as a leader, you always want to add urgency. And it's one of the best things you can do. And what I mean by that is whenever you have a problem or an issue, making sure you assign a directly responsible individual, set a firm timeline, ideally a very optimistic timeline, and just reduce the cycles of work. And how that translates to the workplace and practices, I've seen some companies where problem comes up, you set a meeting, you get a working group a week later, they meet for the first time, then there's another week until they meet again. And these projects kind of drag out and it takes a really long time to make decisions. And the flip side of that is tell somebody, hey, here's a problem. I need it solved by Friday and let them figure it out and you know, work with the right people, take ownership of the problem. And I find that that reduces cycle times from weeks or months to days. And if you think about the competitive advantage of that, if you can drive that mentality across your entire team and through the company, it's massive. And so I think this idea of urgency is, is number one. Now, the flip side of that is my second point, which is providing urgency without direction just dilutes your ability to deliver anything. Uh, <laughs> not everything can be a priority. And so I, I think it's called the Eisenhower matrix, but it's some grid of you know, level of urgency or importance, maybe level of importance or impact relative to level of urgency or time sensitivity. And the idea behind that matrix is you always want to find the things that are the meatiest projects that have the biggest impact and focus as much time as you can there and make sure you're cognizant of how much time you spend in the other areas, especially the things that are not time sensitive and not impactful. And I think if you don't kind of keep a laser focus on what falls into each of those buckets, that's kind of how you end up spending your entire day on a bunch of small little tasks, feeling very exhausted at the end of the day and looking back and saying, hey, like, what did I really accomplish today? And then the last thing I'll call out is don't ignore getting the right people on the bus. So a lot of things I've talked about here is things that the CFO should do themselves in order to be effective, but you're only as good as your team. And I have, I have a great team here at Rippling. I'm, I'm really fortunate. And I think that building and managing a great team is the most important thing you can do. You know, one thing I would share is when I look at hiring folks, the thing that I've increasingly found to be important 
is finding people with what I call grit and people who will work really hard. And that's a little bit of a change for me. I think originally I was overweight looking at resumes and hiring people who are very smart. And we do hire people who are smart and competent, et cetera. Sure. But what I found is, you know, finding somebody who's willing to work hard, deal with the messiness, embrace the challenges of working at a startup and kind of this idea of the 1% improvement each day, over time, that person is going to far surpass perhaps somebody you could have hired who is smarter but less willing to work hard. They will far surpass that person 10 out of 10 times. And I think that that quality of grit and working hard is the number one thing that I screen for and the number one indicator of success that I found thus far in my career. So Adam, you teed me up for this one. Speaking of looking at resumes, I was doing a bit of stalking on you. Is it true that you were involved in short selling at one point in your career? How does that possibly change the way that you look at market dynamics and and now running a company? Yeah. So I was a short seller, worked at a fund called Viking Global for three years prior to joining Brax and and then Rippling. I think you see actually a lot of people who come from the investing world, especially private equity or venture capital, who move into operating roles. I think that public market investing, especially short sellers, moving into the startup world, much more rare, I think. Yeah. At least judging by how hard it was for me to get my first startup job. (laughs) The ironic thing, though, is that I found that my hedge fund experience was actually the most valuable experience I've had in teeing me up for my role. And, And I'll talk about why. The first is that public market investors look at companies totally different than privates. So I think as a private market investor, you're focused on the absolute numbers. Are they good or are they bad? And you kind of have this view of the intrinsic value of the company that's very rational, very stable. Public markets are are not rational or stable all the time. They are in the long term. And when you deal with public market investors, it's not just about the absolute numbers and are they good. You have to understand the narrative around your company in the market. You have to understand how the guidance you're providing will be interpreted. You have to understand the investors that you're working with, the types of investors that are invested in your company. And you find that there's dramatic differences in the share prices of companies that have a good CFO and IR function who manage investors well versus those who don't. And it sounds like a share price management type of thing, but it's actually very important if you think about the distraction from the company from a share price that's whipping all over the place. And also the issues that come up with incentives and share-based compensation for employees who are issued shares at one price and then now have shares worth much, much less. And we're obviously seeing a lot of that today in the public markets. And so I think that knowledge of the public markets was important. I think the other area I would touch on, and it ties back to my point around being an independent thinker and that being very important for a CFO One of the things that short selling forces you to do, which is really hard, is typically you won't find a lot of equity research that is saying a company is worth zero dollars. Most equity research, probably 90% of it is like a buy rating. And what that forces you to do as a short seller is you have to read all these very positive research notes, understand that point of view deeply and understand why the company could be worth more. And by the way, it's usually right. 75, 80% 75, 80% of the time, and then identify in the other 20% when the consensus is wrong, why is it wrong? You know, what are they missing? And what is your unique insight? And that idea of like holding like two things in your mind at the same time and creating a variant point of view is very difficult. And I think it contributes to your ability to kind of think independently and exercise good judgment 
as a CFO. And, you know, I think on a related point, when you are short selling, you do have this inherent healthy skepticism, which I do think just in general is helpful in a world where most people are wired to be optimistic. And in VC, I think wired to be especially optimistic. So it's a helpful counterpoint as you try to add variety to your decision makers. It is kind of ironic, though. You went from being a short seller to being long at at one company. So uh, it's it's fun (laughs) to see the story play out. Yes. And I love that you threw shade at the efficient market hypothesis. I think that's faker than a $2 bill. Yeah, agree. I mean, I guess you would say with NVIDIA being worth, what, $100 billion a few years ago, now worth $2 trillion, it's like clear that there's mispricings out there. <laughs> good, good call out there. Can't argue with the man's facts. So you've got a lot on your plate. How do you avoid CFO burnout? Yeah, you know, I think part of the answer here is the obvious answer. I think you have to carve out time each week, at least for a part of a Saturday and a Sunday, to do things that aren't work and recharge. So for me, it's not too special. I work out every day. I read a lot. I spend time with my wife and my dog. I have a King Charles Cavalier. And those things are all great. I think the more meta answer here is that one of the things that has really changed for me over the last five or 10 years is that I used to be an entirely goal-oriented person. Mm. And I've really had to learn how to enjoy the process. And so what I mean by that is if you think about your goals and you broaden out your perspective in time and space far enough, most things you do don't really matter. And so if you look at, for example, the survival rate of companies in the Fortune 500, it's a pretty short time frame, something like 20 or 30 years. And even on a long enough time horizon, you look at somebody amazing like Steve Jobs, and it's hard to say that he's really put a dent in the universe if you kind of extend out your view far enough. And so on the one hand, that's kind of a depressing point of view. And so I hope I'm not too much of a downer. But what it does push you to do is it forces you to find meaning in the work that you do and in the meaningful relationships you develop in doing that work. And I think if you can kind of enjoy the, the journey as opposed to being on the treadmill of like, here's a goal, I achieved it. And then here's the next goal, I achieved it. You know, I I think that's like how people get into the stage of like feeling like they're burnt out or I've accomplished so much. What else is there out there to do? You kind of have to enjoy the journey along the way. I think you see that with some great leaders. Jamie Dimon seems like he'll never retire, but he's been at the top of the heap for a while. And, you know, that's something I aspire to do as well. Now, to be clear, I still have a lot of goals. I still would say I'm characterized as an ambitious person, but rebalancing a little bit has been important for me in terms of making sure that I have the drive to continue to get up every day and give it 100%. I need to take that clip tonight and just like listen to it. I'll try to brainwash myself at night while I'm sleeping because I'm just like you, man. Like I I set goals for the company all day. I set goals for myself all day. And it's hard to not get bogged down by setting these milestones. And they do these studies on athletes that put so much pressure on themselves. And when they achieve whatever goal they had, it's It's not that it's this joyous occasion. It's this relief that they made it there. It's not this celebration. I mean, I'm biased as a Patriots fan, but I'm watching this documentary on the Pats right now that came out on uh, Apple, and they talk about Tom Brady in the second Super Bowl and third Super Bowl and, and fourth Super Bowl. And it wasn't like this, wow, this is such a cool moment thing. It was like, oh, holy shit, I'm so glad that's off my shoulders and like that's done. But he he wishes he could go back and appreciate like, game 13 of the season, but he couldn't even think about it at that point. So well, what you said there definitely rings true to ambitious people. 
Yeah, 100% agree. All right. So what I'm going to do is take us into what I call our long ass lightning round. All right, Adam, I got a, I got a hot one for you. What's the craziest work experience you've ever had? Yeah. So for this one, I'd have to go back to about a, a year ago when the regional banking crisis occurred. And between a Friday morning and a Sunday night, Parker, myself, and the entire Rippling team, we raised $500 million at an $11.25 billion valuation at the same time that we migrated the entire Rippling payrolls rails from SVB to JP Morgan in a three-day period of time. And I think that was a really cool experience and a real testament to the Rippling team. And I thought it was really awesome to see, first of all, the leadership of Parker in a time of, of real duress. And also, I think it helped me appreciate the lengths that this company is willing to go. We raised the $500 million to ensure that we wouldn't miss payroll. We actually didn't end up needing to use that money, but we wanted to make sure that Rippling did everything it could to be there, recognizing that the services we provide, they impact people's day-to-day lives. And we want to make sure that those employees were taken care of. And so it gave me, you know, I'm not this like overly emotional person, but it gave me a real sense of purpose and a real sense of meaning in terms of the mission that Rippling has and the people that we touch. And I can't overstate enough how baller of a move that was to secure everyone's payroll. So my, my wife gets paid through Rippling. And I remember we were like, I don't think you're going to get paid this week. And it came through. And when Parker made that message that they were going to basically be the backstop for everyone's payroll, it was like, damn, that's a company that like I can get behind. So that, that was really cool of you guys when it happened. Yeah, no, it was an extraordinary experience. Obviously something we hope never happens again, but I think it's one of those classic examples of A, reinforcing everyone's sense of mission at the company, and then B, we're a stronger company on the other side of it. It was the ultimate put your money where your mouth is move, so kudos to you guys. Yeah, no, thank you. Roll the theme music, producer Nancy. And with that, it's time to rep your stack, sponsored by Tropic, the next-gen procurement platform helping modern CFOs take control of their budgets and bottom line. By combining approval workflows, supplier management, and pricing benchmarks all in one place, Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. Visit tropicapp.io to learn how. All right, Adam, can you walk me through your finance software stack? What are you working with today? Yeah, so we have a somewhat atypical answer here. So we use Rippling for almost everything. My team, we use the bill pay product, spend management, corporate cards, payroll, headcount planning, all that 100% done within Rippling. The two exceptions I would call out are we use NetSuite for our accounting ERP, and we have Anaplan to build and store our financial plan of record. At least so far, we're not planning to build NetSuite and Anaplan, but Parker's a very ambitious person, likes new products, so don't hold me to that. Haha, and there you have it. What's the most recent tool you bought? The most recent tool we adopted was our bill pay product, and then a second product that I'm not going to talk about on this podcast, but I will just tease that we have some exciting launches upcoming in our finance cloud. Look at this guy, a true pitchman. You're like the Billy Mays of of the finance software (laughs) stack. So it sounds like you're dogfooding whatever that product to be is. Yeah, that's right. Rippling has a great culture of rippling on rippling. We adopt things fully. Parker's actually an admin in our system, and he 
uses these products himself. And actually, our product teams are deeply involved. So actually within BillPay, as an example, our product team processes all of our bills today. They will continue to do that. Actually, our accounting team does not pay our bills. And the idea is that it forces the product teams to have empathy with the customer, understand what are the ways that they can make the product better. And also, there's this idea of if you build a product that doesn't require an expert to operate it, you can actually make a much better product and one that's much more user-friendly, lowers the learning curve, and Rippling's done a great job of launching those user-friendly products. Hold on, hold on. Your product team approves the bills? That's right. I think there's some... This is uh, amazing. This is amazing. Like, this is really cool. <laughs> yeah, not always as on time as I would appreciate, but they, they <laughs> get there. I love it. That's hardcore, man. That's hardcore. Okay, last question I got for you, then I'll let you go. What's the craziest thing you've ever seen somebody try to expense? Yeah, I mean, so the direct answer is at a previous company, someone tried to expense sneakers, but Michael, Mm -hmm. my friend who you had on this podast and my mentor, I I owe a lot to Michael. He already gave you that answer. So I'll try to give you Yeah, Michael from Brex, he stole that one. Yeah. So at Rippling, the first answer here is we're very compliant. And this is another advertisement for our products, but we have very granular policies and rules in place that do a great job of preventing non-compliant spend. So unfortunately for this podcast, I see much fewer expenses or crazy expenses than you would expect at a startup. And then the other thing, and I, I mentioned this a minute ago, is that Parker is the admin of our system and he reviews all expenses over $15 for the company. Over 15 and bucks, the CEO of Parker Conrad looks at the expenses and approves them. And he will, if they're out of policy, of course, he will kind of comment back to the employee. That's so um, badass. And understand if (laughs) if he should be accepting or or rejecting the expense. And so I think that that kind of oversight from the CEO adds additional reinforcement behind our our value of being frugal and ensuring that we have a high degree of compliance with our spend policy. That's why you were flying economy cross-country, right? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Look, we're not profitable today. We burn money. It's our investors' money. We have a responsibility to deliver a return for those investors. And so it really is one of those things where we try to adopt the mindset of this is money that's from investors and ultimately from pensions and other folks. And we want to we treat that money carefully, put it to its highest and best use. And that's something that we're very rigorous about at Rippling on a serious note. WWPD, what would Parker do? Adam, <laughs> I can't thank you enough for how thoughtful you are, how you prepared for this podcast. And thanks for just sharing, you know, the beautiful business that you're building at Rippling. No, thanks, CJ. It was fun joining you. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to listening to your future podcasts. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. And we'll leave it there. Roll the credits, producer Natalie. Run the Numbers is part of the Turpentine Podcast Network. It is produced by Natalie Torrin and edited by Justin Golden. Album artwork by Some AI Thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. If you made it this far, please give us five stars. I really need this.